if we're honest, our nation was built on stolen land and stolen labor. And that is what made the United States what it is today. And if we can't begin to have robust conversations around not just redistribution of wealth, but of reparations as well, then in some ways we're not having honest Christian conversation, right? I don't think that we can have conversations and confess the past and talk about any kind of repentance without repair and healing of the harms that were done. Welcome to the Center for Congregations podcast. This is a conversation for anyone invested in sustaining and strengthening their faith communities. The Center for Congregations is an Indiana nonprofit that exists because we believe the work of your congregation is essential. Our mission is to strengthen your congregation, helping you find the right information or expertise for your congregation's needs. We're able to do this work because of the generosity of the Lilly Endowment. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Center for Congregations podcast. I am your co-host, Ben Tapper. I'm an associate for resource consulting here out of our central region. And I'm joined by the amazing Kelly Minaz, who is our associate director for evaluation here. Kelly, it's so great to have you this morning. It is such a pleasure to be back. I tell you, I come in for one interview and you can't get rid of me. I mean, you blew the doors off. I have been like scratching at your door to get back on. and Here I am. Although I think it was not actually a testament to my capabilities and more that Matt was not available. So it was as a co-host, me or your dog, right? Was that pretty much the lineup? That's neither here nor there. <laughs> the important thing is that you're here. <laughs> I very much am. I very much am here. Thank you. So we did an interview today with Drew Hart, a professor at Messiah College, talking about anti-racism and how he has seen congregations doing that work. In the terms of your scope of work here at the center, Kelly, whether you're looking at your resource consulting or your evaluative lens, where do you see anti-racism work coming up? So I do a lot of evaluation around our special grant initiatives. So I see congregations forming these like fairly big long-term projects that take on something slightly bigger than the sort of average grant project that we might see. And I remember a time pre-pandemic, so 2018, 2019, in that time frame, I started to hear occasionally a congregation say that as part of their projects, they were going to do something related to Mm anti-racism. And it was a real like, put down your pen moment and like, listen to this, because at the time it was pretty unusual in my experience. Now, I find it pretty unusual if in a cohort of our grantees, no one mentions this. Like there really has been a shift, I think, in what congregations expect to have to engage with. This is not a commentary on the fulsomeness to which they are engaging with it, you know, and I think we can't really comment yet on the longevity of some of these undertakings and the ultimate sort of social impact, but it's much more on the table now than it was even just three or four years ago. And to be honest, I don't see it going away anytime soon. But again, I think the question is going to be, what is the quality of the engagement that congregations now feel like they're at least willing to say they're going to participate in? Yeah, I think that's fair. As I think about my work as a resource consultant, 
I think I mentioned in previous podcasts, I saw a wave of it, a wave of congregations wanting to do this work to learn more about anti-racism, summer, fall of 2020, then like winter and spring of 2021. And the last six months or so, I haven't heard a whole lot about it. Most of the grants I'm getting aren't really about doing anti-racism work anymore. But I do wonder if at some point, not if, but when there'll be a second wave, because it seems like a lot of the congregations that really got fired up about this work are congregations in our major metropolitan areas, you know, kind of like Indianapolis, Fort Wayne, Lake County, and not as much in like, you know, if we're thinking of central Indiana, I haven't heard of a lot of congregations in the suburbs, you know, Westfield, Carmel, Fishers that are taking up this mantle. And so I have to imagine at some point that wave will hit some of the suburban areas and maybe even more of the rural area congregations. And so I'll be curious to see when that wave hits, what that then is like. I mean, the hope is that we're not just waiting for another crisis. Yeah. Right. I mean, history shows us that that's kind of the way this has played out. There has to be something tremendous and catastrophic to get everyone's attention. Sure. So for those who have not yet been caught up in the wave, I mean, you do wonder what it will take. Yeah. How has the wave hit your evaluation circles? Oh, man. I tell you what. So the American Evaluation Association, which is the main group of evaluators, the professional group for evaluators in the United States, they have always at least a little bit had conversations and content that relates to anti-racism and evaluation led, I want to say, actually in North America by our Canadian brothers and sisters to the north, I think because they're so keenly aware of indigenous issues, they've been more on the ball even than the American Evaluation Association. But I tell you what, in the last two years, you would be hard pressed to find anything at that conference that didn't touch on anti-racism and equity in some way. But I will say for my work, I never put anything in any of my scope of work documents for evaluation about anti-racism or equity until like mm. this last year and a half. Yeah. Which looking back on it, it's like, well, was I was I sleeping? But on this particular issue, yeah, I think I was. Like I, it had not occurred to me that in my particular corner of work, like I need to explicitly name this thing. Yeah. And now it seems very obvious. But 2018 Kelly would be really surprised <laughs> to learn that this was something we were going to like really need to strategically do going forward. And now it seems very apparent. Yeah. It's fascinating that there was a pivot even for you as you think about your corner of work. And I imagine a lot of people have had a similar experience over the last 12 to 18 months. And a quick plug for those that want to learn more about the work Kelly does here at the center and about evaluation in general, check out season three, episode nine of this podcast where we had Kelly on as a guest Wonderful episode, one of our best episodes of season three. So definitely check out that back catalog material. It's perfect for you if you love surveys or the sound of my voice. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Uh, Well, you know, we could keep kind of talking more about anti-racism and where we've seen it, but Drew has a lot of wonderful things to say. So I think we should let the people hear from Drew.
Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Center for Congregations podcast. I'm here with Kelly Minaz and Drew Hart. Drew teaches theology at Messiah College. He's also the program director for Thriving Together Congregations for Racial Justice and the host of the Inverse podcast, as well as an author of several books. So, Drew, we are very happy to have you on today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to our conversation together. And Drew is on brand. He's rocking his Messiah sweatshirt even here in the interview. Man is ready. Man is ready. <laughs> Get um, paid extra for, you know, right. No, I wish. So we're here today to unpack a little bit of what you've seen and what we've all seen in congregations when it comes to racial justice. We had, for those that might be visiting planet Earth for the first time, in the year of our Lord 2020, there was what many are characterizing as kind of a racial uprising or a period of racial unrest across the country, sparked by the deaths of African-Americans at the hands of police. Taylor's oldest time, really. And Drew, the work that you do focuses on helping congregations understand what it means to become anti-racist, what it means to kind of unpack some of these hard discussions and to find their theological voice, their faithful voice in the midst of these conversations. And so I really just like to know what you have seen from congregations since that heightened intense period in 2020. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting question because I always tell people I get to work with the folks who are at least wanting to grow or change or deepen their practices or something, you know. So those are the congregations that I'm closest to, the ones that I have proximity to in the most significant way. But in many of those spaces, what I've been seeing is, oh, well, there's a mix even among those churches, right? Sure. I mean, there's churches that have kind of taken what I call, we could call it a abstract intellectual anti-racist kind of approach, which is like the perpetual book studies, right? Just never ending book studies one after the other. And they see that kind of disembodied abstract work as the work. That's the end goal. They're doing the work. And so there's that side of things. You're saying that doesn't cure racism? I know. I'm not sure why that just, you know, book knowledge somehow doesn't seem to bring down the strongholds of white supremacy that have been embedded in our society. I don't know why, but it doesn't. Weird, but all right. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah. Just trust me. Just go with yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> so there's that. And on the other extreme, though, I've also seen churches who are like, oh, well, we need to do something. Right. And so they're just like trying to keep busy with new programming or different things like that. And so like they don't have time to reflect on themselves. They don't have time for self-examination work at all. And so I think at least for churches that are at least aware that there's a problem, I find many of them swing into those poles and only a small percentage, I would say, kind of fit in with like when people talk about like praxis, that place where like reflective practice and active reflection and kind of bringing the two together. There's a small percentage of churches I think are living in that space. So it's been interesting, you know, so I engage with churches for a whole variety of different reasons. Some of it is just people reaching out because of my book. Some of it's through the Thriving Together program. Some of it recently, me and a friend have been doing some local work, doing some congregational assessments for congregations, more like in-depth kind of processes with them. So there's been churches that are like wanting to hold a mirror up to themselves and kind of, you know, from both internal and external look at like who they are and the kind of commitments and practices and ways that they kind of organize their lives, which I think is actually a quite vulnerable 
place for many congregations to be in to kind of knowingly right invite someone in to expose how white supremacy is showing up in a whole variety of different ways. So that's definitely there. I've seen churches that were briefly for a moment, they were doing all the like activism for a moment. They were out when there was big marching and rallies and things like that. And they've kind of seemed to kind of shrink back to just the norm of what they were doing before. I probably could keep going on and on, right? But just so much of that. But at the same time, I know certainly from my students that there are many churches that are deeply resistant. Mm -hmm. Clearly, we hear in the larger scheme of things, a lot of backlash going on, a lot of digging in of heels, a lot of almost like toddlers with hands on the ears, kind of just refusing to dialogue and listen to the stories and experiences of others. So, I mean, all of that is happening in the church. Absolutely. Absolutely. Is there um, one or two trends that you've noticed that have maybe surprisingly encouraged you over the last 18 months? Yeah. I mean, I do think that the very fact that there are more white people in general and even more white Christians than at any other point in our history that are engaged in these conversations, that are looking to flesh out what this means in their lives in some capacity, that's actually great news, right? Mm -hmm. Even if it is the action without any reflection or just the, you know, kind of abstract intellectual kind of approach to it, like all of that is way better than the kind of disregard of Black people's lives and kind of imagine oneself as neutral and outside of these realities. And so, Mm. yeah, I mean, I'm actually quite hopeful in that sense, not hopeful in the sense of like we're tearing down white supremacy, but that we have more folks than at any other points, um, not just in my life, but literally in the lifetime of our nation, people who will speak out on some level within their own spaces. So there's some good news there. Yeah. So I bet there are congregational leaders listening out there saying, oh, I really see my church reflected at one of these polls, either all action, no reflection or book club, book club, book club. In your experience, what does the good balance or the good stuff in the middle look like? And if a congregation is at a poll, have you seen evidence that they can make their way to that good middle? Yeah. So for me, I think some of what I hope for congregations is that they could get to a place where they're doing ongoing self-reflection and self-critique and learning while they're actually engaged, right? And that probably means finding folks that they can follow, right? So if this is like a white congregation that has never been engaged in the work at all, their best bet is not to just chart out their own path, right? (laughs) But rather maybe find another congregation or interfaith organizing group that's doing good work already and coming alongside and becoming students, right? In action. And then in the context of that, continue to read, to dialogue, because then it's actually creating space for mid-course corrections, right? As you're reflecting and learning and gleaning, it's not just intellectual or abstract, it's actually embodied. And I think that that's actually really important for the two to come together in that way. You know, I've seen congregations move. I don't know if I've seen like this perfect, I mean, I don't want to be like idealistic as if like, I don't know if, you know, how many of, there's probably a small handful of churches that really do that well. And I don't, 
want to like create unrealistic barriers of, you know, but I do think it's helpful for us to have a goal that we're kind of oriented towards, right? So we can recognize probably none of our churches are ever going to have some perfect balance, but I do think that we can have a goal. And if we recognize that our church is a, like my church that I go to, like there's a lot of folks that just want to do stuff, right? They're very justice oriented. Justice has been in the mission statement for decades, you know, but they're not really like, uh, oh, let's do some self-examination work, right? And so like it, someone's got to like slam on the brakes a little bit to help us as a community do that because for a lot of folks, the DNA of the church has been, well, we serve and we do justice and we do things out there and less internal emphasis on like, do we need some theological critique, right? Even within our own community about how we go about this. So yeah, some of the work that I'm doing is the long haul work. So like our program that we're running through Messiah, the Thriving Together program, it's a two-year program. And so the evidence of what I will see from that will be, you know, I mean, we just started this past fall. It'll be in two years where they'll be really truly getting to embody through fresh takes on their ministry and reviving their own sense of tradition and who they are as a community in their local communities. That's to come. So yeah, I'm more excited about having the opportunity to walk with a congregation for that long because usually I don't get the opportunity. Maybe I might have a relationship with a pastor or leaders or Christian community so I can get feedback and, you know, speak back to what's going on over the long haul. But a little bit more intentional process of programming for two years is something that I'm quite excited about. You touched on something that I think is exciting, and I don't know if a lot of congregations consider it when they are wrestling with how to approach racial justice. And it's the idea that, at least in my opinion, the work of being faithful and fighting for racial justice will transform your congregation. It will transform your DNA. And I don't know if congregations are prepared for that or are ready to do that deep transformative work, but that is actually the work, right? So can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this is, this is huge. You know, so I'm working with a congregation. This is, it's not thriving together, but just a local congregation. And, you know, so this is a white progressive, highly educated, I'll even go out and just put out Mennonite, you know, <laughs> put them out there and, yeah, you know, course. congregation, that they invited me and a friend in to do some work. And what was fascinating is the ways in which it became very clear that they imagined, yeah, we need to keep reading books, but like the problem is out there and the problems with conservatives and all that kind of stuff. And they weren't imagining that they themselves need to mm. undergo a radical transformation, right? Yeah. And so we were using a lot of the language, not just of anti-racism, but of decolonizing, which I thought was actually going to be more helpful for that particular congregation, for them to understand the gravity mm-hmm. of the kind of transformation that they need to undergo I mean, their own biases in terms of how they go about organizing and assumptions of what they value and don't value and such. And so, yeah, I think that is huge. It's so huge. When congregations can't imagine that they themselves need to become something else, which is scary for a congregation because as we all know, right, congregations just love change, right? (laughs) For those that don't know, I'm going to put you on the spot real quick. Well, two things. One, for my audience that are not Mennonite may not know, Drew is what we in the Mennonite world consider Menno famous. So he's kind of a big deal. Just want to leave that out there. Secondarily, I'm going to ask you, Drew, to do something that I don't think I could do succinctly right now, which is, can you speak to what the difference is between 
being anti-racist or an anti-racism framework and a decolonized framework? What's the distinction there that you'd want to name? Yeah, you know, I've been having some interesting conversations both locally and globally with folks around these distinctions. Like here in the U.S., my conversation partners around this have been indigenous folks because they often are more likely to frame things around decolonizing. I mean, I think in the Black community are more likely to hear anti-racism and racial justice language. And globally, the conversation has much more been about decolonizing than anti-racism. And there's historical reasons for that. And maybe that is my end for how to explain it. I mean, you think about the Black experience here in the U.S., so much of it is, I mean, we were literally severed from our homeland, from our tongue, our native tongue, tribes. I literally carry the last name of, you know, slaveholders, right? And so decolonizing is a really complicated framework for folks who, you know, I won't say it's impossible for everyone, but for many of us, it's near impossible to get to a meaningful family story or ethnic story beyond slavery. It gets really messy. We can talk about Africa in general or West Africa and these big narratives and things like that. But in terms of like, what's my story? It gets really complicated at that point. And so what we have been able to do is try to make a new life and challenge the very systems and structures that are crushing us and oppressing us Mm -hmm. and are death dealing. So, so much of our emphasis has been attacking the system, structures, institutions, and trying to transform them. And I think in many ways, Black Americans, even on a global level, have maybe led as models for that kind of work because the emphasis has been so targeted. That said, there are things that aren't addressed, right? When you only think about, or maybe you could say it's overlapping, but there's emphases in decolonizing that aren't as emphasized in anti-racism work. When we think about sense of identity and land, mm-hmm. what's our relationship to the land, right? Again, how we talk about story, family, ethnicity, tribe, all those things, right? And the ways that European, Western ways of being have crushed and smothered our desires, aesthetics, our pursuits, our ways of inhabiting life and relating to others, right? It's not that anti-racism can't deal with any of those things, but the emphasis is much stronger in decolonizing on those particularities. So for me, it's been really helpful to kind of think about each as both really meaningful and important streams that should be in conversation together. And I think our anti-racism work would be strengthened by deeper dives and dialogues with folks who are talking about decolonizing, who've been working through that for not only decades, but centuries, as well as those who've been emphasizing decolonizing that often don't have as strong of an emphasis on the anti-racism, racial justice side of things as well. And so I think there's some mutual benefits to be had from different communities that kind of come at it from different angles. And some of it's just based on our different lived experiences. Mm-hmm. So now that we've opened the door to talking about big themes, something that I don't hear a lot of in conversations with congregations about anti-racism, even those who are really involved in the work, is what role the economic system has to play in all of this. And I don't mean to take this into like capitalism takedown territory, but if you wanted to, as our guest, I would invite you to do so at this time. (laughs) So can you help us unpack a little bit about how you see these things being related? 
Yeah, I mean, they're absolutely related. And I don't think we can address racism with integrity without having an economic critique and, and naming the very economic structures that sustain and were the originating forces for why such racist, racialized logics were created to begin with, right? It was conquest, it was plunder that originated the desire to create a white supremacist ideology to begin with. And so, yeah, we have to be able to talk about the disparities that exist. So I just mentioned I was in South Africa and, you know, it doesn't take long before you're there and you're like, like, damn, like you still go into some of these townships and you got black folks crunched, right? In the tightest of living conditions in their own homeland as white people like own not only the majority of the land, but the wealth, right? Now, of course, maybe it's easy as an outsider to look at South Africa and be like, oh, well, look what they're doing. Uh, But it's the same thing here, right? In fact, it was quite interesting as I was having conversations with friends there. Their thing is like, I'm like, how in the world, you know, do you all live with this kind of, you know, I'm like, because I just want to like burn everything down when I'm there. That's how I feel. And they're like, I don't know how y'all live with a white majority, right? Who have all the political and economic power. And so I'm like, hey, touche. I I hear you. (laughs) You got me. (laughs) Yeah. But I do think if we're honest, our nation was built on stolen land and stolen labor. And that is what made the United States what it is today. And if we can't begin to have robust conversations around not just redistribution of wealth, but of reparations as well, then in some ways we're not having honest Christian conversation, right? I don't think that we can have conversations and confess the past and talk about any kind of repentance without repair and healing of the harms that were done. And we don't even have to only talk about slavery to get there because the harms never stopped, right? I mean, people have made the case just as much from slavery as it is from Jim Crow as it is from just ongoing contemporary realities, right? Because our society is structured in a way to perpetuate those disparities at every level. And you could look at it, let's talk about education systems, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, people think often, many folks around the world think it's bizarre that we would fund education the way that we do, right? Property taxes, well, what is that designed to do, right? What does it sound like it's designed to do, right? To perpetuate disparities in the education system. There's no other logic to creating a system like that. And then certainly within certain states, certainly like my own, it's even worse than just the property taxes, but then the state itself is overfunding white school districts and underfunding school districts of color as well. So it's like a double whammy. And so, yeah, I think that we have to address it. In fact, in the morning, I'm doing a chapel and I'm going to do it on Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus is, you know, a great lens for us to think about how do we respond when there is great economic exploitation and harm being done, right? That's Zacchaeus. He's not just a tax collector, but a chief tax collector, right? Who's very rich is what we're told because of that. And so he has this Jesus encounter, right? And his Jesus encounter leads to him with two main responses. One, first, that he's going to give half of his wealth to the poor, Right. And then the second response is he's going to give four times back what he had taken from others, right? And so it's the two things that mainstream American Christians hate, which is redistribution of wealth and reparations all at the same time, right? And this is consistent with the Gospel of Luke in terms of the jubilee emphasis around economics that we see throughout the Gospel of Luke. And it's the foil to 
right? The rich ruler who comes to Jesus in the chapter right before, right? It's on purpose that they're so close in proximity together that we can see the contrast between the two where he's told, you know, sell everything that he has and give it to the poor. And he hears it as good news and walks away sad, right? And so there's this contrast between him who's unwilling to, and so he can't participate in discipleship to Jesus and Zacchaeus, who is willing to, and then we're told that salvation has come to this house, but that he was once lost is now found. And so I think that we have to get beyond the kind of brainwashing around capitalism is a divine gift from God that has been dropped down from heaven and can't be critiqued and all that kind of stuff. And I don't know how you can read you know, the Torah, the prophets, and certainly not the culmination of it all in the person of Jesus Christ, and not come with a, a devastating critique of our systems that continue to harm those who are most vulnerable in our communities. People find a way, but yes, I <laughs> don't know how. <laughs> so Drew, as we look at the landscape of congregational life today, look at kind of where we're at in this countrywide, nationwide struggle, even global struggle against systemic oppression. What trends do you expect to see over the next 18 months? And, you know, I know here at the center, we've seen congregations get kind of fired up about the work. And then as grant funds dry up or as people leave, energy just kind of shifts and dies down. There's some congregations that are resistant to it, some that want to start, but don't know where to start. And so as you kind of take all this in, what do you see some of the trends being going forward when it comes to either decolonization work or anti-racism work within congregations? Yeah, I mean, I think the more time that goes by is going to show the kind of level of commitment that different congregations had. I mean, I think that's going to be what's most revelatory. And it doesn't mean that the stuff that was happening for other folks, that it was inauthentic. I wouldn't say mm-hmm. that it was inauthentic, but it just didn't have deep roots, right? <laughs> and so I think what we're going to see more and more, which we've, I think we've already begun to see is, you know, everyone was talking about like the great awakening and stuff. I was like, I don't know if it's a great awakening, but it was this dilemma moment where people had to kind of make a, they had to take sides, right? You couldn't be neutral in the moments. And I think there was something healthy about people having to kind of take sides in some form. But beyond that, yeah, we're going to see folks who actually underwent an actual awakening, who actually underwent a reckoning, right? And maybe that's the language that was used. And other folks who it was more of a, you know, I hate to say superficial. I'm trying not to overly misrepresent because <laughs> I don't think that's fair. But yeah, again, I'll just say it didn't have the deep roots yeah. necessary. And I think that that's going to become really, really clear even more than it has been as more time goes by. Because I think the congregations that actually had the kind of willing to get to the root of things are going to be undergoing some really radical transformations. I mean, there's a church yesterday, I was in conversation with a pastor who they're doing a deep study on white Jesus. It's like they're interested in changing the aesthetics of their sanctuary, which is going to be costly, but also like trying to go beyond that, right? What is this, the implications of a white Jesus, even for their own discipleship and practice, right? Like that's getting at the root of things, right? Mm -hmm. In a different way that I think we're going to continue to see some congregations kind of fleshing into some deeper waters while others, you know, maybe just will keep their toe in and stick it in and out every now and then. I get kind of excited hearing about that exploration of white Jesus. All right, folks, do the work. So I think we've acknowledged in this conversation that 
white Christianity and Christianity in general has a lot of work to do when it comes to dismantling hierarchies all over society. So in my social space, I hear a lot of arguments that actually it would be better to just do away with the church for society. It propagates racism. It holds up, you know, hierarchies that are really damaging, sexist, colonialist. So actually, American society doesn't need the church anymore. Do you think that American society still needs the church? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm of the school so deeply shaped by, you know, Sojourner Truth and Frederick Douglass that I want to differentiate, right? Who are we talking about when we say the church? Not to disregard the idea of the universal church or anything like that, but also to acknowledge that there are also then different kinds of church manifestations within our stories that have played very different roles, right? And so it was it. So Frederick Douglass in his slave narrative in the appendix, right? I always tell people, you got to read through the appendix. Don't stop at the end of the story. You're going to miss all the good stuff. And there he says he differentiates between true Christianity and the religion of this land, right? And that there's nothing farther between the two, that he loves the peaceable, true Christ and therefore hates the slaveholding, woman whipping, cradle robbing Christianity of this land, right? And I think that there's something meaningful about that. And we can be careful not to oversell as if like one's got it all perfect and the other's got it all because because there's a mess all over the place, right? Because we're humans. But to not acknowledge that there are Christian communities that have been deeply liberating forces within the world that while, yes, there has been ways in which Christianity was weaponized to try to use it as an ideological weapon for the status quo and domination, social load, you know, all that kind of stuff. Like at the same time, enslaved Africans are simultaneously stealing away illegally, right? And encountering God for themselves. And the God that they're encountering is a delivering God, right? It's a friend in hard times. It's a God that's going to lead them towards freedom. And so that also is the white slaveholders and such don't get to claim copyrights over all of Christianity. Uh, you know, I think that we've got to acknowledge these other streams that have existed from below on the underside that have been powerful forces. And in fact, we can't say that we as a nation to the degree that there has been any level of democracy and justice and mutuality and all that, it's undeniable that the role of Christians have played an enormous role in making that a possibility as well. So unless we want to erase what animated the lies of, like I said, Sojourner Truth, Fritz Dolly was Harriet Tubman and Ida B. Wells and W.E.B. Du Bois, right? And King and Shuttlesworth. And, and you know what I mean? Like all the way up to the president, Cornell West and such, like, Unless we want to like erase what animates their faith, the folks that we see as giants in the faith and have really informed and influenced way beyond the scope of just the church in terms of our imagination for justice and for caring for our neighbors and, and that kind of stuff, then we have to recognize that there's a need for that kind of reality in the world. That's actual good news, right? So I usually talk in school with my students about in the Black church, there's the priestly versus the prophetic, right? If you're going to use the Lincoln Mamiya's framework for thinking about the black church, the priestly and the prophetic streams and wings and stuff. And, and not all of the black church has been a prophetic force, right? Let's we'll have to be honest about that. And even those that have, 
at times have also been complicit in other forms, right? In terms of patriarchy and sexism and things like that. So it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a automatic like, oh, pass, go, you're above critique. I think that we all need to be held accountable, but there certainly are churches that are way more liberating <laughs> and other churches that do more harm that, that I think would actually be helpful. So yes, I'd love some churches to pack up and go and we'd probably be better off without them. And there'd be churches that if they packed up and disappeared, we'd be worse off because of missing the kind of presence that they have in our world. Very well said. Very well said. Once you got into Frederick Douglass and them, I was I was in church. I felt good. I didn't take up an offering. Thank you for these prophetic words, Drew, today. I think it's been really good to hear and to kind of see your perspective on the shape and the direction that congregations are moving. Before we wrap up, Kelly, did you have anything else you wanted to ask? I think I was happy to have a little capitalism takedown corner <laughs> and uh, discuss whether American society still needs the church. I mean, I think our work here is done for today. Check and check. <laughs> so, Drew, for those that are curious to know more about you, maybe want to find your books and learn what you're working on next, where can they go to do those things? So I have two books that you can find pretty much anywhere books are sold. First one is Trouble I've Seen, Changing the Way the Church Views Racism. It came out in 2016. And then the other one is Who Will Be a Witness? Igniting Activism for God's Justice, Love, and Deliverance, which came out in 2020. You can also find me, I'm a co-host for the Inverse Podcast, along with my friend Jared McKenna, who's from Australia. And so along with podcasting, we actually have all kinds of different like learning communities, subversive seminary, decolonizing Sunday school, all kinds of stuff. And it's a global community. So it's a lot of fun. It's a part of the Patreon community. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Drew Hart, D-R-U-H-A-R-T. And I get around quite a bit speaking and stuff. So maybe I'll be in a city near you. <laughs> Coming to a city near you. Love it. Well, thanks again, Drew. We appreciate you. And we're so glad you could join us this morning. Yeah, thanks for having me. This has been fun. So I don't know about you, Kelly, but that conversation has me so hype right now. Give me some of your main takeaways. I mean, I tell you what, for big ideas in a pretty small podcast, we're getting a lot of bang for our buck in this hour, yeah. I think. I love that he is really encouraging congregations to take a big view, like spreading our concepts around anti-racism into a conversation about decolonization is a really significant paradigm shift, I think, for a lot of congregations. And it's a moment for congregations who have been thinking about this work for a long time or working in this area for a long time to conceptualize what might be next. Mm -hmm. It's a global conversation. And of course, there are a lot of particulars in our own communities and in our own society and our own nation. But there is so much to be learned from a truly global conversation. And I think that not shying away from big concepts and big questions is going to be essential in keeping this work moving. 
Absolutely agree. You know, we've touched on anti-racism a few different times over the course of this podcast. And I don't think I've heard anyone else bring up decolonization. And so I was really glad that he was able to kind of bring that framework here because it is important. It's something that I've been thinking more and more about, again, because of relationships with indigenous folks that I know and that I follow on social media. And so I think it is such a, a more expansive framework and it helps connect some of these kind of systemic fights and battles that have been happening in communities uh, across the globe. So I love that he brought that up. And I hope that congregations are able to find it helpful, you know, because he offered a lot of challenge to congregations today that I think it'd be easy for some to hear and feel defeated or discouraged. But that wasn't the spirit with which it was offered, right? I, I heard it is designed to broaden our perspective and to help us ensure that we are doing the work in the way that it needs to be done. And I think the piece that maybe excited me surprisingly, even more than the conversation about capitalism or decolonization, was the piece about this work transforming communities internally. So how did that piece land with you in particular? I appreciated that he named that that level of transformation can seem really scary. Mm. And as you say, it was not in a way that was discouraging. Things can be good and terrifying. Yes. Many things that are good are terrifying. Right. But doing something that is that transformative is such a unique opportunity for congregations to really live into the fullness of the gift that they have to offer. And I appreciated the way he spoke about what faith convictions have to play in this. I think it's really easy for us to conceptualize congregations and the role that they play in society as being mainly kind of like a civil society actor, which is yeah. true. And I think congregations are really critical to civil society. But it's critical not to lose sight of what your faith convictions have to do with the call to do this work. It's bigger than like a media moment. It's bigger yeah. than even a social movement, right? It's a question of eternity, right? The scale is huge if you take that seriously. And congregations are one of the very few places that something on that scale can be considered. Yes, yes, absolutely. And that he gave such a tangible theological example was really exciting to me. You know, connecting the idea of reparations to Jubilee. Love that. And I don't hear it talked about enough. My guess is it's spoken about more in like congregations of color, particularly black congregations. But I just, I love that idea. And I think it's a theological question that has to be wrestled with, right? And frankly, I haven't heard Jubilee preached on in a long time anyway. So that just seems to be a concept that isn't as popular as maybe it used to be. I just love that he'd offered something tangible for people to wrestle with and chew on. And I would say if that, listeners, if that is a subject that interests you, his book, Trouble I've Seen, does a really magnificent job of connecting the theological to this social moment and what we're called to do at this time. And I am not a theology person, as probably literally any theology person can guess from listening to me talk on this podcast. But he does such an excellent job of making the connection between the biblical and anti-racist work. And in fact, the call to dismantle all hierarchies, really. So check it out. It's the first book yes. I've read this year. It may also be the first book I've read in a year. We won't go all the way there, though. Yeah, no, that's fine. First book you've read this year. I think there was a question that you wanted to ask him, but you forgot. Can you talk about that for a second? Yeah. So I had a long list of questions, but the man doesn't have all the hours in the day to listen to my questions. But one of them that I regret not asking was whether he thought the church could be apolitical. I mm. hear, I mean, I, I think his answer would be no. Just sure. a guess. But I'm fairly confident. 
I hear congregations all the time sort of placing themselves outside the political. And I don't mean political parties like Democrat, Republican, but I mean about outside of the political system. And you hear a lot of this, oh, discourse in society. It's so uncivil. Congregations should be a place where we learn to talk to each other, you know, peacefully and constructively, which is true. But that doesn't excuse you from engaging with the political system, I think. Mm -hmm. But I hear a lot of congregations sort of depoliticizing themselves. But it's important, I think, to ask yourself the question, what role do we play on this earth, which is so deeply governed and often divided by politics? You know, what ways can we be engaging with it aside from saying it's ugly? Mm, Yeah. And what kind of privilege does it indicate to even think that we could have the benefit of considering ourselves apolitical, right? Or avoiding conversations. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That would have been a really rich question. Next time. We'll get him back for part two. Sure. sure. (laughs) You obviously, no one can see the video except Kelly and I, but what I find interesting is our preparation, I think gives a great snapshot into our personalities. So Kelly has like an entire sheet of paper filled up with like potential questions she wanted to ask that she was ready for today. If you had seen like my piece of paper before I sat down for this interview, I think I had the words interview with Drew Hart written at the top of a sheet of paper. And that was it. (laughs) Literally nothing else. I just knew who I was interviewing. No wonder you were stumbling over your words. You were intimidated by my notes. (laughs) I don't blame you. It was just, it was amazing. Blew me away. (laughs) So you mentioned the trouble I've seen. We'll also have Drew's other book in the show notes. But what other resource did you want to bring today for our viewers, Kelly? So for the people who enjoyed the really big questions in this podcast, which I know is some of you, I am going full nerd and going to recommend this excellent book called Designing Disorder, Experiments and Disruptions in the City. It's by Richard Sennett, who wrote the first sort of edition of this book in the late 60s, which was kind of a similar time, actually, in the political climate in the United States. We may remember that there was some racial unrest. Just a little bit. So he wrote an original edition of this at a very similar time in political history and is now revisiting these concepts with a younger urban studies person. This comes from an urban studies place named Pablo Sendra, who is Spanish, I believe. But if you are interested in thinking about the ways that society structures us to have a particular viewpoint and reinforces hierarchies, even in the way that our cities are built, it might cause you to reflect differently on the place where your church is situated Mm. or how you conceive of your community when it comes to things like community ministry. So if you're interested in these big questions, these big structures, and the way that hierarchies get continually reinforced in our environment, even when we're totally unaware of it, I highly recommend this book. Love that. I imagine that'll be something more and more congregational leaders are thinking about. You know, like, what does it mean to be situated in this community? Should we move? Are we participating in any form of injustice by being where we're at and by the level of engagement we have? So, yeah, I think that'll become more and more relevant. Well, and a big principle of this book is that the places where we live are designed to keep us from interacting with other types of people. And that the Mm -hmm. best thing about a modern city is that you come up against people who are different from you, but our environments are designed to preclude that. It's very difficult in modern American society to have interactions with people who aren't like you. Interesting. So the idea that we should challenge this, it's really a call to challenge the structures that shape our lives. Phenomenal. 
always here for a good challenge. The, the resource that I wanted to bring is one that I may have brought in a previous podcast. It is the Equal Justice Initiatives Museum and Memorial. So it's kind of two resources, technically, I guess. You have the Equal Justice Initiatives Museum, which is an organization headed by Brian Stevenson. And the museum basically catalogs the history of slavery in the United States, not even just slavery, but racial injustice. So it starts with shadow slavery and then it goes through Jim Crow, goes through mass incarceration, lynching, kind of touches on all those eras of disenfranchisement. And it really does a great job of not only capturing the history, but humanizing the experience. There are different interactive places in the museum that quite honestly nearly overwhelmed me and almost brought me to tears. And I've, I'm fairly immersed in this stuff anyway, and yet still I was deeply moved by it. So the museum was phenomenal. They do a lot in such a tight space. And the people that work there are clearly brought into the mission and passionate about it. And then when you go a few minutes down the street and you visit the lynching memorial, I mean, again, talk about an awe-inspiring experience. I was blown away at the enormity, at the grandeur, at just how overwhelming and somehow personal the experience was, you know, to see even just unknown names on these hanging placards just kind of struck me. And so if you are a congregation that wants to deepen your knowledge and understanding of the history of systemic racism in the U.S., and you want to understand really the brutality of the experience and how that brutality continues today, I think it's worth a trip down to Montgomery, Alabama with a small group of leaders, potentially even like could be a youth group trip for older youth just to help people understand the enormity of what we're talking about when we talk about anti-racism or decolonization and not only the enormity of it, but I think once you can see it, once you can hear the stories and see kind of the awe of it all, it inspires you to then figure out how to do the work yourself, how to get your congregation to do the work, to get your community to do the work. So this is a resource that, again, I would just highly recommend. I love this recommendation too, because it's a reminder to participate in these kinds of liminal experiences right, especially on the heels of, you know, two years of pandemic living, to take your body to a place to experience something is huge. And I think the way you spoke about how powerful it was for you is possibly in part due to that liminal experience, right? Yes. No matter what, it is going to be a different thing from reading a book or reading a blog post, right, inherently. And it's a useful practice, too, because so much of Western society hinges on written text, right? We are a people obsessed with books, right? If it's not in a book, it's not real knowledge. And (laughs) so to have this practice of taking your body to a place and using that as a way to build knowledge or feeling or conviction is an important exercise in itself. So I love this recommendation. Yeah. And I think that the ability to do it in a group is really valuable as well, right? Whether it's your family or your congregational community, I think there's something about sharing that kind of impactful experience with one another and being able to process it together that that is rich in a different way than a book study might be. So true. And, you know, call the Center for Congregations. Indiana churches will write you a grant for that. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and one more plug for this place. Because our longtime podcast listeners know that I love food. I mean, there's really no other way to say it. I absolutely love food. Food enhances any experience. And the cafe, the cafe (laughs) at this museum is phenomenal. And then once you have eaten your fill of good Southern food, I'm talking like corn pudding, I'm talking greens, just great stuff, biscuits, 
there's an excellent bookstore. So you can get like children's books, you can get t-shirts, you can get different memorabilia. So stuff that will help you continue your learning as well and maybe even interact with different generations and age groups. So they've really thought this thing through very well. I'm very impressed still. Amazing. So burn my book recommendation. Go to this museum. Buy a book from that bookstore instead after your lunch. I love it. There you go. When I was there last year, Lupita Nyong'o had a book there, actually. So I know, right? Star power. Tell you what. Star power, indeed. (laughs) Oh, man. So thank you all for listening to this episode. Before we wrap up, we do want to thank the generosity of the Lilly Endowment for making all this possible. So we really appreciate their continued support. And we want to thank our audio engineer, Jaden Lee, for making us sound intelligent He does a phenomenal job day in and day out, and we really cannot thank him enough. We also want to encourage you to follow us on social media at Center for Congregations, both on Facebook and Instagram. And if you're so inclined, please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes and Apple Podcasts. That's the fastest way for new listeners to find this content. And finally, we have one more thing coming up. Do you know what it is, Kelly? Almost certainly, I don't know what it is. Please tell me. It is our geographic shout out. This is a fairly new trend that Matt and I have started doing where we find a random listener in a random place that we know is listening to our podcast and shout them out. It's really a a random place. And so today's geographic shout out goes to the city of Venice, Florida for their nine downloads of our podcast. We appreciate those downloads. Those of you that are listening or have listened in Venice, thank you for your support and keep listening. If you have questions or suggestions, please email us at podcast at centerforcongregations.org. I never check it. Matt does religiously though. So he will most assuredly see your email, but please reach out to us. We'd love to hear your feedback. And for that, I am Ben Tapper, the Center for Congregations. It's been great having y'all here. And I'm Kelly Manaz. Thank you for the opportunity to come and guest host. It's been a pleasure. Oh, anytime. I hope listeners out there will write in to the perennially unchecked email inbox and request my future presence on the show. So again, if you like the sound of my voice, I'll come back. I work here, so I have no choice. (laughs) Right. (laughs) She's just on the hall. (laughs) But it's also my pleasure. It's also my true pleasure. So thank you for the invitation. Thank you, Kelly. All right, y'all, you take care.